This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Everybody, welcome to another episode of Conversations with Tom. I am here with the absolute legend, Richard Dawkins, and we are going to be talking about his latest book, Outgrowing God, and hopefully a whole bunch of other things. You've written such a library of seminal works that revolve around rationality, the pursuit of truth, secularism as uh, a power for good, and wanted to dive into something that I'm particularly obsessed with, which what is the the advantage of truth. Why do you think it's so important for people to start there? From an evolutionary point of view, I think that truth uh, probably helped you to survive. I mean, you need a realistic assessment of where the lions are, where the waterhole is, and all that kind of thing in our ancestral past. Today, I think it's perhaps even more important where we're actually assailed by uh, political leaders who are who believe in alternative truth, um, where... Um, they actually want to distort truth for their own purposes. So I think that truth is the biggest weapon against demagogues, and demagogues are one, one of the things we have to deal with today. So in a world where truth is routinely distorted, where you get social media rabbit holes where people can create that sort of echo chamber around themselves, how do people, because I don't know that everybody ends up there on purpose, to be quite frankly, to be quite frank. So how do you recommend people um, approach thought or thinking or to make sure that they are on a path of rationality? I fear we all, to some extent, are susceptible to the echo chamber effect. And it's a thing we need to fight against, and I try to fight against it. Um, well, believe in evidence, believe in, in rationality. Um, the organization that I'm a part of, which is the Center for Inquiry, which has merged with my own foundation, the Richard Dawkins Foundation, um, is all about rationality, all about skepticism, all about testing propositions for their truth. And so we have, uh, for example, a, a lawsuit at the moment against homeopathy, um, which oh, not only doesn't work, but cannot work. Define homeopathy. Okay, this is the, the pseudo-medical belief, it goes back quite a long way, that the way you treat a disease is by, or, or a, a problem is by giving a very, very small dose of, of whatever the offending thing is. And by very, very small dose, I mean very, very, very small. I mean, they dilute and dilute and dilute and dilute and dilute, so much so that I think James Randi once calculated that the... Oh, oh, they think that the more you dilute it, the more effective it becomes, which is crazy, obviously. Um, and he calculated that uh, for the most effective, according to them, homeopathic re remedies, you would need... Uh, a volume of water the size of the solar system, <laughs> the single molecule of the active ingredient in it. Um, and so that's homeopathy. And 
Uh, what our lawsuit is, is about is not to prevent people selling it, but to prevent people putting it on the same shelf mm. as proper tested medicines. So you, you're looking for a remedy for a cough or a cold or, or, or whatever it is, and you look along the shelf and you see homeopathic re remedies mm. sitting right next door to uh, proper remedies. Uh, and that's what we're fighting against. They must have a separate shelf called homeopathy and preferably also called, by the way, this doesn't work. <laughs> what, what is it about, because I find there's a certain type of person that's really drawn to that. What is it about um, human evolution that's led us to have what all, I will lovingly term the woo-woo gene, where there's just some people that really respond to a more mystical answer it versus... It does seem to be, doesn't it? I, I mean, one of the things that's a bit depressing is that when people give up religion, they sometimes switch to woo-woo, as, you, as mm. you say. It's as though they somehow can't quite divorce themselves from, from nonsense. I mean, what, what we want to do is to, is to switch from all kinds of supernatural nonsense to rationality, evidence-based thinking, critical thinking. Is, is the notion of a god neuron real? Like, is, is there a region of the brain that, when faced with the supernatural, makes, creates a neurochemical state where you feel that profound sense of awe and connection that people are chasing? I would hesitate to say a neuron. I mean, I, I think that, that human brains are susceptible in that kind of way. And I think it's one of the things, one of the weaknesses of the human brain, um, understandable perhaps. And uh, but I, I wouldn't call it a, I wouldn't call it a single neuron, no. So, and I I definitely say that more is just like a when I step back and I look at this and I think, okay, there as somebody who one full disclosure, I believe that a level of self delusion is tied to happiness. So there is like I'll often tell people. When I'm thinking about myself, I care necessarily less about what is true because I'm probably more likely to believe something negative. But because I want to succeed at a certain level, I'm obsessed with accurately identifying the world the way that it is and not the way that I wish it were be. So homeopathy is a great place to start because you're looking for a health-based outcome. And ultimately, health-based outcomes come down to you're either alive or you're dead. These are pretty like binary things. They're very serious consequences. So that to me is a really interesting place to start. So if you have somebody who is, they have a neurological state that they are chasing that I will, in, in a generous framing, I'll call awe. And I will say that awe is arguably one of the most profound and enjoyable states. So if when I'm presented with this notion of, hey, there's this magical way to take this compound, dilute it, and it, it becomes almost like a, a divine moment. Some magical, mystical thing that I can't explain happens. And that speaks to that sense of like connection and wonder that I have, which it doesn't with me. But I'm just saying like if I were to guess at what makes people go for that instead of Tylenol or, you know, something that we know and can test and measure actually has an impact. Is the hope by shining a light on that, if it really is a real neurological phenomenon, is the hope that by shining a light on that, people can sort of talk themselves through it? Yes, I, I think I'd make a, a contrast between, say, astrology and astronomy, where both of them tap into that feeling of awe that you describe. Mm. And when pe people talk about um, Jupiter moving into the second house of Aquarius or whatever it is, that has the same kind of frisson that you can get from talking about galaxies uh, and and um, galaxies rotating and, and we moving around the galaxy. It's the same kind of frisson of awe that we get. But one of them is nonsense 
and the other one is true and beautiful. Um, and um, beautiful because it's true. Mm. And so um, I, we, we want to promote the astronomy and everything like that, like, like um, evolutionary biology, like geology, like physics. These are all wonderful because they're true, but they are wonderful. And the thought that you can actually understand the universe in which we are and why life arose where it did and why it developed in, in the way it did, that is absolutely wonderful. Mm. And to deprive children of that wonder is an act of wanton vandalism, cruelty. That is, uh, that is something I, I will very much agree with. Like when you stand on the, I don't know, even just stand somewhere where there's no light pollution and look up at the sky and that sense of like seeing the sky for the first time and, and being so ridiculously small, was that to create that sense of wonder in the face of, of the real natural world, was that the goal with something like Outgrowing God, which I know you aimed at a younger audience? Yes, very much so. Um, the first half of Outgrowing God is about sort of debunking God in various ways, um, beginning with there are so many different gods that people have believed in, and then moving through the Bible and how um, unreliable it is, and then to morality and how we don't need God for morality and so on. And then the second half of the book is about science, uh, mostly evolution, because that's my subject. And also that's because, because that's probably the main reason why, from a scientific point of view, people do believe in God. They, they look at living things, they look at the complexity of living things, and they think, well, that has to be designed by some master engineer, some master designer. So the second half of the book is largely devoted to dispelling that illusion. And then the final chapter is about the more wondrous deep questions of cosmology, um, the origin of physics, the origin of the laws of physics, what happened before the Big Bang, things like that. And the idea is taking courage from Darwin. Darwin solved the big problem in that field, which was explaining life. Mm. Because life really is, until you understand Darwinism, life is deeply mysterious. Darwin solved that, and that should give us the courage to realize that one day we will solve the other problems, like the origin of the laws of physics. Why is there something rather than nothing? Yeah, that, that to me, the question, and I, I've heard you talk very eloquently about um, Einstein may have done a bit of a disservice by always using God language, but his notion of, you know, <laughs> I want to know God's thoughts and everything else is just details. Um, I've, that, that's always rung with such a beautiful mystery to me. Um, I love that quote. Um, and one of my employees here uh, has a degree in neuroscience, and she was just absolutely transformed. You, you have shaped her view of religion as an adult. And when she was telling me the story, she was saying there was such a smile on her face as if you had opened that door of wonder for her. There was, n there was no sense that you had diminished something. Um, it felt like she had traded one thing in. Maybe that had served her very well when she was younger, whatever. But after encountering the ideas of that sort of pursuit of truth and, and opening yourself to the beauty of what is real, it was very obviously impactful for her. Is there something that you think particularly in this book or in any of your other books, like if you had one thing to tell somebody and you wanted to open that door of wonderment to um, the, the real world, the natural world, however you want to define it, what's that well, thing? What you say about her, of course, is music to my ears. That's wonderful to hear. Um, I wouldn't pick on one thing. I mean, the whole shebang, the whole, the whole of life, everything about it. I mean, I, in, in this book, Outgrowing God, I pick on 
one or two things like the chameleon's tongue, mm. um, octopus skin. I mean, these are just two out of millions of possible examples you could choose. Everything about it is wonderful, about life is wonderful. And uh, in my other books, like The Blind Watchmaker, I picked on bat echo ranging, for example. Um, in Climbing Mountain Probable, I picked on vision and I picked on spider webs. In This Outgrowing God, I picked on the chameleon's tongue and, and um, the octopus skin. The octopus skin, you know, changing color from second to second, not like a chameleon which changes color from minute to minute. Mm. Um, Octopus and squids and, kephalop and and kephalopods generally, cuttlefish, uh, change color from second to second, and they can actually kind of play movies over their skin, almost literally play movies over their skin, um, at, at sort of real speed. Have you seen, there was a recent video that I saw that was, um, it, admittedly they don't know what it was doing, but it looks exactly like the octopus is dreaming and it's rapid eye movement and its skin is like skin, changing color yeah, <laughs> yeah. so fast. It was crazy. I think they think with their skin. I mean, I, I, I've got on record as saying that. Whoa. Um, and dream with their skin is a lovely thought too. That's really interesting. Mm. Um, when was the first time that you saw something so profound or read something so profound, whatever that moment was, that made you go, I'm going to be an evolutionary biologist? What was that thing that just slapped you upside the head? I don't think that happened to me. I think I... I had the other way around. I kind of got to Oxford and and um, in my second year there started getting interested in the sort of philosophical questions. I don't think I ever had a kind of natural history. I do plenty now, but there wasn't one that hit me over the head when I was young and mm. put me into that. What field. are some of those things now? Oh gosh, well, I just mentioned some of them. I mean, just things I put into my body. and is what is it about that so I will say when I saw the octopus the thing that freaked me out and I'm I would guess maybe this isn't what you were uh drawn to but when I saw what looked like an octopus dreaming I thought oh my god they're more human than we think they're basically the aliens we've been waiting for like all the wonder like if if an octopus came from outer space we would freak out yes but the fact that it's in our yeah. oceans we're like oh well it's always yeah, been here that, that's so right. the 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 way that it made me feel this like, oh my God, it's us. Even now, just telling you that, I'm getting the chills. Is it, is it the nature of evolution that when you see how complex it becomes that, that gives well, you Well, from an intellectual point of view, yes. But uh, I mean, you're right about aliens. When I, I once went to a lecture by a man who was doing research on octopuses. And he said, began his lecture by saying, the thing is, these are the Martians. <laughs> and that's, that's right. I mean, they, they are very, very alien. And um, they seem to be very intelligent. Uh, I think we should give them the benefit of the doubt and assume that they probably do have feelings. Mm. I don't know if this is actually true, but I heard one time that it is illegal, where I don't know, but illegal to operate on an octopus without anesthetic because the assumption is that they're so highly developed. I would hope so. I mean, I would, I would like to think that's true. That, that's true, in, certainly in Britain, I think in America, of vertebrates. Mm. And I think octopuses, cephalopods generally, have been admitted to that charm circle, uh, whereas arthropods haven't, I think. Yeah, that, that to me is, uh, is deeply fascinating. So what do you say when the, the blind watchmaker, I think, makes a really amazing, um, it, it gives a, an amazing example of how you get something so complicated, but yet leaves these telltale signs of things that are so obviously nonsensical, yes. if you were thinking of, of intelligent design. Walk people through that aren't familiar with um, the, the, um, 
the nerve that runs through the giraffe's neck? Uh, the laryngeal nerve, which um, all vertebrates have in one form or another. Um, in our fish ancestors, uh, the equivalent nerve went to one of the gills, uh, and um, it, it, it passes um, posteriorly to, to um, a major uh, blood vessel in the, in the um, chest of whatever you call it, of, of, of a fish. When the fish started to evolve and, and develop a neck and became eventually mammals, um, the nerve started to get stretched in a detour because it, once there was a neck, when I start again, it starts in the, in the brain, mm. and in mammals it innervates the larynx, the voice box, and it um, doesn't go directly to the larynx, it goes straight past the larynx, down into the chest, loops around one of the main blood vessels in the chest, and then goes back up to the larynx, which is a detour. In a giraffe, it's a very, very big detour <laughs> indeed. Um, and the reason for it is history. As I was started to say, in our fish ancestors, that same nerve passed south of that equivalent blood vessel. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't a detour, it was, it was a, the direct route. But when the neck started to grow longer, um, it became a detour. And it wasn't a very big detour to begin with, it was just, just a slight detour. And as it got longer in evolution, the marginal cost of each successive increment in the detour was slight. So it wasn't worth it to radically change the embryological process and jump the nerve over the blood vessel. That would have required a major rethink, so to speak, of the embryology. So it just got longer and longer and longer and longer. And in the giraffe, as I said, it's, it's absurdly long. So it's a wonderful example of how history explains what is obviously bad design. Yeah, that's it. What I love about that is when you think about how complex we are, the the real temptation is to jump to, um, well, obviously there's there's thought behind this. This yes. it's so calculated, but when you start to see example after example like that, it it really gets pretty fascinating. You don't really need. I mean, it's a, it's it's a it's a silly inference actually to say that it it, it must have had a designer because I think as you said earlier. Um, you've still got to explain where the designer came from. And so, and so you haven't actually um, got, done anything when you said that, that, that there's a designer. It's a non-explanation. Yeah. What Darwin provided was a real explanation, which goes back to primeval ultimate simplicity and then gradually increases the complexity over time. That's what you want. And that's what we've got. Do you have a, a, a mechanism, a metaphor that you use to really imagine time? I've heard you say, and I think this is so right, people just cannot conceive of how long a million there, years is. There are many. Is. I mean, and they're all equally good, really. The one about making a clock be the whole of, of geological time. Mm. And um, humanity came on the scene five seconds before midnight, that <laughs> kind of thing. Another one I like is you stretch your arm out and you say... Uh, the, the middle of my neck, my tie, is is the origin of life, and then my fingertip there is the present, and the dinosaurs don't come in until about my wrist there, maybe the middle of my palm. The dinosaurs are very recent compared to the time mm. that it's be, been available, and um, humanity comes in at, at about the, near the end of my fingernail, and the whole of recorded history 
the ancient Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Hebrews, the Greeks, the Romans, all of, all of recorded written history is the dust in one stroke of a nail fire. Yeah, that is, um, that I think has that same sort of pale blue dot effect for me yes. where it's like, yeah. man, it's the unimaginably long amount of time that it's taken us to get here is, is so massive. And ultimately everything we think of as important, important and world shaking and defining everything that we know is this just infinitesimally small dot floating through space. Yep. Um, <laughs> That is, uh, yeah, that to me is, is really, really interesting. Now, when you begin to tease out sort of, okay, we have selfish genes which want to make sure that they replicate, and so they're going to do things that maximize that behavior, whether for the person or for um, the, the lineage, so that, you know, a mother would sacrifice for her kids. That makes sense, especially if she's past her age of reproduction. The kids are reproductively viable. She is not. And so you would expect some sort of mechanism to arrive on the scene for that. My real obsession is um, more along the lines of epigenetic changes and how much malleability we really have. So if you had asked me five years ago, I would have, without intending it, but I would have said something that sounded a lot like being a blank slate. The more I research, especially Steven Pinker, and you get into reading the actual blank slate and realizing just how much we come pre-programmed with, um, it gets very interesting, but I am still particularly fascinated by the amount that we can change. Do you think at all about um, adaptation as a, even if it's just cultural, like adaptation within, within a single lifetime, or does that feel like just the absolute wrong word? Well, I wouldn't use the, the same word, I think. I think it's very important, obviously, cultural adaptation is very important, but it comes about through such a different mechanism than... Uh, Darwinian adaptation that it's important not to not to confuse them like you I greatly admire Steve Pinker's Blank Slate um, and Matt Ridley has written a, a similar book which I recommend to you um, Nature via Nurture it's called um, so I think that um, for partly political reasons um, nature is underestimated I mean, I think there's a kind of political what do you mean, pressure. How so? Well, um, it's becoming unfashionable to to suggest for one single moment that there might be genetic differences I between see, male see, and female, for, 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 right, for example. Right, right. I mean, you get you get tarred and feathered if you say that. Yeah. Um, and um, obviously, um, cultural influences are immensely important, but so are hormonal influences, and and uh, you you can't really deny that. Mm. There is a kind of tendency for political reasons to attempt to downplay the importance of biological Have you by any chance, this is an outside shot, this does not strike me as your kind of book, but have you read the book A Billion Wicked Thoughts? No. Say, say it again? A Billion Wicked Thoughts. Richard no. Dawkins, you must read this book. Okay. It, is, it is salacious to say the least, yes. but it was basically these um, Google engineers who said, every time you try to study sex, you, you can't get real results because people are going to lie. They're uncomfortable about it. So even if you say, this is all anonymous, don't worry you know that people are going to be, they're going to hedge their bets. And then these two engineers thought, wait a second, there's actually been the largest experiment on human sexuality ever done already, and it's called the internet and anonymous searching. But you can actually tie it back to certain amounts of data. So they went through, I don't know how many millions of searches, and they began to just group things. This had a profound 
impacted me. So I know you don't know a lot about what we do at Impact Theory, but we're a media company. So ultimately our goal is to make film and TV, but I want to make film and TV that help shape culture so that people begin to think in a certain way that will empower them and make their lives more fulfilling. Long story. So I, when I'm reading this book and I'm seeing the profound difference between what men search for as far as porn goes and what women search for, it is crazy. And he took, uh, the, they took, I should say, passages of males describing sex in like basically smut books and then women describing sex in their version of erotic novels. It is the, the exact same act. It is hysterical, the difference. And it was one of those where I was like, the, the differences aren't <coughs> slight. They are massive. And so that was one where I was just like, as, as a person who makes film and TV, you must know your demographic because the, the way the brain responds to stimulus is so different from men to women. And people can tar and feather me all they want. It's just like, that's just naked in the data. Yeah. So I'm not saying one is better than the other. I'm just saying no, they yeah. are very different. Wasn't it Google where somebody was sacked for? James Damore. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That whole thing, look, I think ultimately this all flips. And so here's the good news. The position that um, myself and my wife and co-founder are in, it's like we want to help and we want to impact people, but we're not beholden to anybody. We're self-funded, blah, blah, blah. So um, for us, our thinking is the only way forward is the one that is real. And whatever real is, then we need to get to real. Now, I personally think that the only thing that's really interesting is the when you get into differences, it's going to be at the tails, right? If you're thinking of a bell curve. So sure, at the tails, there's a lot of difference. It's a lot of fun. For the most part, people that take up the bulk of the curve, you're all going to be able to do whatever there's you huge want. There's so, overlap yeah, it's like, in the bell curves, yes. So whatever you want to do, you're going to be able to do. It's not like any one race, sex, ethnic, anything yeah. is going to outperform the other. Eh. Yeah. The vast majority of all the bell curves overlap, so I don't give a shit about that. But what I find utterly fascinating is, is the sort of revelatory nature of what happens at the tails to hint at sort of where we've been pushed evolutionarily um, to go. So anyway, I, check out that book. It, it's, it's, I think, very, very I interesting. I will, and I applaud what you're saying about what matters is the real. This, of course, is the mission of the Center for Inquiry and the Richard Dawkins Foundation, that we are out there to try to promote the real and truth uh, and skeptical examination of evidence-based reality. And it's a very, very important mission because, as I said earlier, we are living in a time where, um, where reality is being actively distorted. Mm. And, and it's very important to counteract that. So what's interesting to me is I think some of that distortion falls in line with what you call conjurers, what I'll call magicians, magicians or yes. mentalists. Um, Darren Brown impacted me so dramatically. And for a UK audience, they will know instantly who that is for an American audience. He's sort of, uh, there isn't really an exact correlate because he's a mentalist. So he's not doing card tricks, but he's using similar things. Um, but I was watching a video on a flight of all places and it impacted me so profoundly. I thought about quitting my job, moving to the UK to study with him because what he's able to get you to think you're seeing is so incredible. Do you think there's overlap between a magician, stroke conjurer, and some of the stuff that we see happening in uh, the realm of politics? And by that, I mean specifically that they are aware of the psychological um, sort of illusions and they exploit them. Well, Darren Brown calls himself a mentalist and um, he gives, I mean, his, 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 his act is to pretend to read people's thoughts and to influence people's thoughts. Mm. Um, He's, he's just a conjurer. I mean, he's just doing tricks like anybody else. 
um, and um, he even pretends to be using techniques that he clearly isn't using. I mean, for example, he will suggest that when he appears to telepathically read somebody's thoughts, he will, he will say, okay, I'll explain how I do it. Did you notice in my patter before we started that I kept on mentioning the sea and sailing and ships and giving you the impression that he was suggesting to the victim Mm. something to do with the sea. If that were all he was doing, then he would be right statistically maybe a majority of the time, but he wouldn't be right all the time. Mm. He's right all the time. So he's doing tricks like any other magician. So, um, I mean, I, I wouldn't be too spooked by him if I were you. No, no, not definitely not spooked, but um, the admittedly some of what I think he is pulling off may be entirely true sort of sleight of hand, whether it's, you know, somebody in his ear or whatever saying something that they picked up from the audience. Um, and that would be less intriguing. Yes. Um, but certainly his ability to enrapture a crowd, to get everybody focused in one place, yeah. to make the performance seamless. I don't think I've ever seen it done better. Like he definitely creates this sort of incredible environment. Yes. And to create that environment, I, I think you, even though when he is saying I'm using this psychological technique or that psychological technique, that might be a BBS. I think he really does understand psychology well enough to control a crowd. Yeah. And that's where I think he gets really, yes. really interesting. But I mean, what I think about all, I mean, he's a great, great conjurer, but then so is Jamie Ian Swiss, so, so is the amazing Randy, so Penn and Taylor, there, there, there are several of them. Um, and what they make, I mean, the message I get from that is that what looks like a miracle isn't. Mm. And um, my emotion screams at me, this is a miracle, it's got to be a miracle. Um, and, but, it, but it's not. And the same thing, I've, I, I generalize that to the, the, the big problems, like, are you really asking me to believe that the universe started as a random quantum fluctuation and then grew up through inflation and things? Uh, that seems, I can't believe that, that's incredible. You, can't, I, you cannot be serious. No, that's exactly my reaction to a great conjurer. Mm. And that's only a trick. Well, in the same way, the universe starting from a random quantum fluctuation and um, nothing annihilating itself and becoming something, whatever it is, that's equally hard to believe. And the fact that conjurers can fool you gives me the confidence to say, because that's a trick, and there really is a scientific explanation for that, we should not lose confidence in the ability to explain the origin of the universe by science. I'm not saying that's a trick. Of course I'm not. That's mm. another matter entirely. But our instinctive incredulity is something we should strive and struggle to overcome. Your laundry list of extraordinary books pointed a life mission that you then echo precisely on your website. You just come out and flat say, like, I'm trying to bring the world to rationality and a more secular understanding so that we can move forward in a way that's productive. Um, is there, and so your life mission, that becomes very understandable. Is there a way that you think the specific things that you touch on from an evolutionary biological perspective become usable in somebody's day-to-day -day life? So take me, I'm not an evolutionary biologist, but I use these things tremendously. Like when I think about demographics and I think about telling a story, I need to understand the differences in my audience, where somebody is developmentally when they're a child, where they are as an adult, where they are as a male, as a female. To understand that, 
that. And I have found that putting that in an evolutionary context has been tremendously helpful. Uh, and even just understanding my own emotions, where they come from, why I should or shouldn't listen to them. Do you, what are things that you want people to take away in their daily life? I don't use my science very much in that way to try to um, get where my audience is coming from. I, I don't... Um, I, I don't, don't think I quite do what... I mean, I understand what you're doing, and I respect that, but I don't think I, I really do that. Do you think... So more than I'm asking if you do it, because your mission is very clear. You're, I'll say, operating at a societal level. And now I'm asking at a personal level. So if somebody reads your books, let's say they read all of them, do you think that there's an amalgamation of, of information there that allows them to steer their own life instead of just trying to steer society? I would hope that if, if they come to a scientific worldview, they would lead a better, more fulfilled life. I would hope that um, if they understand about life, about where they come from, where they themselves come from, mm. uh, their ancestors, where they come from in evolution, I would hope that they would feel more satisfied with living because they know where they come from, they understand the world in which they live, the process that gave rise to them. That's what I would want to achieve. I, th I think that somebody who dies without ever knowing why they were born in the first place uh, has, has died deprived of something important. Do you think there is a why? Or do we decide that why? There is a, a what? You said um, if somebody dies oh, without knowing why oh, by they were why, born. I, by why, I simply meant the causal chain that led to their existence. I, I, didn't, I didn't mean a purpose. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. That's I don't, what, I I don't like, use the what? language of purpose. No. Yeah. Do you, if somebody were to ask you what's the meaning of life, what would you say? Well, I would say on the one hand, the meaning of life is propagation of your selfish genes. <laughs> on the other hand, I would say you make your own meaning. Uh, and, we, and we all do that. And we lead, again, we lead a better life if we have if we develop something important i mean if in your case you you have a media company and that's very fulfilling in my case i write books and give lectures that's very fulfilling somebody else writes music or plays music there are all sorts of ways you can give meaning to your life your your personal relationships your your love for your spouse and your children etc these these all give meaning to life do you look at that any differently like knowing the the evolutionary biological reasons for love? I know that um, you've had a long-lasting marriage. Not really. No, I, 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 um, I, I don't think I... I think I, I just behave like a human being in that respect. <laughs> and just go through, feel it. It's interesting because the, the reason that I asked my earlier question is, for me, I, I have needed to be able to visualize the process once I could understand, like I'll, I'll even just put it in evolutionary terms. Once I understood evolutionarily what was going on, why emotions were arising the way that they were arising, why my brain was developed in sort of this tri-layered thing that there's, you know, basically your lizard brain, your mammalian brain, your neocortex. Once I could understand all of that, I could go, oh, I see like this fear response that I'm having. I don't need to just act in accordance with it. I can actually use my prefrontal cortex to interrupt the signal. I can use what I call physiological hooks. So breathing from your diaphragm, which I'd actually love to know if you know why that works so well, but breathing from your diaphragm when you're meditating instantly begins to shift you out of fight or flight and into the parasympathetic. And so as I began to think of myself as a biological system, 
the, the doors of the universe open to me. And so I'm always, I, one of the weirdest episodes I ever did of conversations with Tom, the show that we're doing right now, I got into this like two ships passing in the night. The other person that I was talking to was just convinced there was, there was like a, a mystical thing. And I was just like, dude, we're, we're biological material. Um, you know, Phineas Gage, I'm sure. And so Phineas Gage railroad spike through his head, never the same after it. I'm like the notion that there's some part of me that survives beyond my soul or that is in any way different than the sum total of my biology is crazy. And so once I understood, Oh, I'm a biological machine, but I have, even if Sam Harris is right and that my free will is a total delusion, I feel like a rider on an elephant. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agree with that. And of course the, Phineas Gage type evidence means there's no question about it. We are nothing but our brains. But but nevertheless, when you're in love, um, it, it it doesn't diminish from it that you that you that you you know it's just brain stuff and hormones that, that, that's going on. It's still an, an an intense emotion. Yeah, I think that that is arguably the most important thing that somebody could derive from your work is you go into the biology, you talk about the evolution, you, um, you look plainly at whether religion is likely to be true or not. But I feel like you hand people an entryway to a universe of, of just unimaginable beauty. Yes. Talk a little bit about The Greatest Show on Earth. Uh, this is my book on the evidence for evolution um it's a the, the, the full quote is the greatest show on earth the only game in town which is i think a, a circus th- um mm. thing um so it, it it really is just simply laying out why why we know that that darwinian evolution is true and uh so it goes through all the all the evidence um and uh yes one of the books i'm proud of and what is it that is so awe-inspiring in that that you called it the greatest show but the product of the only game in town is the immense diversity of life, the complexity of life, the elegance of it, the profoundly convincing illusion of design, the sheer beauty of it. Uh, that is all produced by a very, very simple physical process. And uh, so it is the only game in town and the product is the greatest show on earth. And as somebody who I'm assuming you believe when we die, it's essentially like a light switch, you're just out yeah. and it's done. Um, how does that influence how you think about living? It makes me want to live life to the full and to encourage other people to do the same. It's the only life we've got. So let's live it to the full and let's leave the world a better place than we found it. I think that is a perfect place to wrap up. Richard, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. I, I have been blown away by your work for years Uh, And I'm just grateful that you put it out there. And I know that at times it is maybe a little tumultuous, uh, but I respect that you just keep going, man. Thank you very much for everything you've done. It was an honor to have you on the show. All right, everybody, that's it. You should follow this man. You should read all of his books. You can go to richarddawkins.net. You can learn more about his um, campaign to change the world for the better there. But uh, drop his name into Amazon. You will get a laundry list of extraordinary books. I recommend them all. All right, everybody, peace out.